0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to A Biblical Frame. My name is Ed Gerber, and I will be hosting the show for today. Um, If you've been with us in the past, you'll know we've covered a lot of topics. Um, Our aim is really to serve the Church and to reflect on current events in order to strengthen the Church of God in the world. One of the things that we have noticed, and one of the things we have discussed previously, is the functioning of the church throughout COVID. And we are really wanting once again today to look at how the church functioned in the midst of the COVID pandemic to ask some hard questions about whether we functioned really well, whether we responded well, how we were interpreting what was going on and maybe where we could have done better. But we're going to shift that today. Uh, We're going to reflect on that a little bit today, but then we're going to shift it to look at what might be coming down the pipe and how the church needs to get prepared in order to respond to challenges that are almost certainly to come our way. So I have here with me today a number of guests that have been with us before, and also a very special guest in Aaron Cariati. So we're all going to introduce ourselves, starting with Ivan. Good morning. It's
1: Ivan De Silva. I am a retired Vancouver police officer detective, and um, currently a, um, uh, teaching religious studies at Trinity Western University and Pacific Life Bible College.
2: And I'm Jan Zimmerman, Professor of Theology at Regent College.
3: I'm Aaron Cariotti. I'm a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the Brownstone Institute and a physician in private practice.
4: And I'm Douglas Farrow, Professor of Theology and Ethics at McGill University in Montreal.
0: So I think one of the helpful places we can begin today is indeed kind of rehearsing a little bit uh, from Aaron's perspective, what went on during COVID. Um, there, The church responded in various ways. We had some churches that uh, went along with all of the things that were being asked of by the government. Others uh, resisted shutting down resisted not meeting together resisted mask mandates and and all the like of that these are still as many of us know particularly in our family situations or in our church congregations these are areas where it's very difficult for us to talk about because we still don't agree i still think that we're in something still of an epistemological crisis in terms of where people are getting their information from but in your evaluation area, maybe I can ask you is, um, did the church, do you think there was facts on the ground that should have led the church to resist the government dictates more in terms of, and you can go wherever you want on this, in terms of the vaccines, in terms of the lockdowns and the like of that? Um, because I, I think the question I want to get to ultimately is, was the church prepared to face what came our way? <laughs> And uh, and then we can move and ask the question, how do we become more prepared if something like this is going to come our way in the future, which invariably it probably will?
3: Right. Well, with many of our policies in 2020, there are actually very few people now that will defend some of the key policies in 2020. It's almost impossible to find someone who would defend school closures. So insofar as our churches had affiliations with private schools and close their own affiliated schools, I think we should widely regard that now as a mistake, not only a mistake, but something that was actually very harmful to children. Likewise, it's becoming much more difficult to find anyone who would defend the prolonged lockdowns of 2020, the stay-at-home orders. And really by April of 2020, there were two key empirical facts the two most important epidemiological facts about COVID that were well-known and replicated. And even though they weren't being sort of proclaimed from the rooftops, this was information that was widely available. And the first of those two key facts was the infection fatality rate, which was 0.2%, not the terrifying 3.5% to 4% initially proclaimed by the WHO. So we very quickly realized that many, many more people were infected with COVID Uh, than we thought. Many of them didn't have significant symptoms or only had the mildest of symptoms, so they didn't come to clinical attention. And if you count all those people, the number of uh, people who are actually killed by COVID compared to the number of people who are infected looks quite modest. And then breaking down that 0.2%, we also know that the vast majority of those were people over the age of 70. And that for those under the age of 50, COVID was no more deadly than any other common cold coronavirus, probably less deadly than influenza or on par with influenza. So having a response that was so disproportionate to what we would have done in the case of a typical flu season, having a response that was one size fits all and didn't take account of the massive age gradient, the fact that a 75-year-old is at a uh, 1,000 to 10,000-fold higher risk than a healthy child or adolescent or young adult. Uh, th- those two things should have been taken into account, even by people who didn't have scientific expertise. The church can certainly proclaim um, ignorance on the, on the question of science or the expertise in epidemiology or virology, but they can't claim ignorance of basic ethical principles. So particularly when it came to policies that were clearly disproportionately impacting the poor, clearly when it came to policies that were exclusionary and discriminatory, I'm thinking of the vaccine mandates and the vaccine passports, policies like those which also bypassed the principle of free and informed consent, which has been a key bulwark of 20th century medical ethics and Christian bioethics, Christians as Christians as theologically informed citizens who have an understanding of the human person, human freedom, human dignity, should have been recognizing that aside from the the, the scientific issues at stake with these policies or the scientific debates about these policies, we had something really important to say about the fact that uh, certain individual rights, uh, certain social goods and particularly our, our mandate from our Lord to care for the poor and the marginalized, that these things were being steamrolled or set aside by these policies. And yet we've, we heard very, very little by way of objection from, uh, church leaders, from pas- pastors, from priests, bishops, ministers, and so forth.
0: It's interesting. So I, I was pastoring a church at that time, I recall that Jesus as a house divided against itself cannot stand. And one of the challenges is that myself and my <clears throat> youth pastor would speak out on precisely these issues yeah. and talk about the range of collateral damage that we knew were going to happen to the young, to teenagers who were being locked up, and sacrificing, and also, I, Jay Bhattacharya said very early on in his knowledge that um, the truncating or stopping of the movement of trucks and stuff like this was going to have an incredibly deleterious impact on the poor. That's right. And we've seen that starvation has gone up by, I don't know what the stats are, something like 100 million people are now starving because of the way we responded. And I remember Jay saying at one point, too, that I think we are seeing that our um statement that we love and care for the poor is a little more in the church sometimes than lip service. That's right. Because we were willing to sacrifice the poor. So we didn't have very much of a global perspective. It was very individualistic in the way we were looking, ironically. But when we, uh, myself, my youth pastor would bring this to our council, it was, we need to follow the rules, and it was some of these taglines that came in the church very early on that Douglas Farrow has referred to in terms of love, you just need to love your neighbor, and the way that you love your neighbor is to stay away from them. And the good Samaritan now is the one who passes on the other side of the road. Right, right. So it was, that was part of it for, I'm, I'm just saying it from the perspective of pastors, it was, it was we were divided against ourselves. Um, and I was looking for trying to keep our church in some way or another together as well, so it was a very challenging time for us as churches would we Would we say though that it was reasonable in the beginning, given the information that we were hearing, that churches locked down, stopped worshiping together? In other words, to put it, is there or could there be a scenario where it would be entirely reasonable for the church not to gather?
3: I think the answer to that is no, uh, with caveats and qualifications. So certainly uh, people who are not comfortable gathering, people who are at higher risk, accommodations should be made for them to somehow stay connected to the community uh, through the use of technologies or through the use of other means without necessarily having to be in a crowd of people but I think it would would have been important for our churches to keep the doors open for those who were willing to assume those risks. And the fact is Christians throughout the church's history have taken risks to their own individual health in order to minister to the sick and to provide uh, the, the ministry of the word and the sacraments during periods of contagion. And, Typically, the approach that the Church takes to that is not to require priests or ministers to put themselves in harm's way, uh, but for those who are willing to do that, those who freely and voluntarily assume those risks, uh, they're they're permitted to do so. And I think that's the approach the Church should have taken. I mean, we can go back to the healing of the le- leper in the Gospels, uh, the man who uh, walks up to our Lord and says, if you will, you can... Uh, you can make me clean. And this is a man who hasn't been touched physically by another human person for as long as he's had this disease. And you know that he's craving not only the healing of his leprosy, but also the touch of another human being. And uh, the gospel includes that lovely detail that our Lord not only says, I will it be made clean, but he reaches out and touches him in that act of Healing, and that's been an example I think throughout the history of the church, where we see, and, and sometimes this uh, this has resulted in the sacrifice of one's life. So, in my own Catholic tradition, we have Saint Damien of Molokai, who went to this island with le- lepers and, yeah. and lived with them for years, eventually contracted the disease and died. But he's held up as a model of Christian holiness or of heroic virtue for. Uh, For having done that, in the case of COVID, uh, again, any minister under the age of sixty would not have been putting himself or herself at any significant risk the way Saint Damien did.
0: So, so, but to underline what you're saying here is, let's imagine that it was as bad or even worse than the initial models were suggesting. Mm -hmm. Even in that scenario, we should have, as they say in leadership circles, we should have delegated anxiety to the individual rather than delegating anxiety to a bureaucracy above who's making decisions for everybody. Now, the one rebuttal I can imagine to this, and please, others, jump in whenever you want to, but the one rebuttal I can imagine to this is that those who would then gather together are going to get each other infected, and then they would go out from that place and get others who were vulnerable infected. That seems to me like a reasonable uh, concern.
3: Well, I I think with a highly contagious respiratory virus or any other uh, contagion, the idea that any individual is responsible for infecting any other individual was problematic from the beginning. So telling children that they might kill grandma if they went and gave grandma a hug, uh, not only is this a great way to turn every single person into a potential threat to my existence, the the ultimate tool for dividing society. But it's also putting a burden of guilt on individuals and a burden of responsibility on individuals to try to stop something that no individual actually has the power to stop. COVID spread to an outpost of people on Antarctica during the pandemic that had virtually no contact with the mainland. So this is an aerosolized respiratory virus And the idea that I can control my behavior in such a way that I'm never going to spread it to another human person, uh, I I think, was folly from the beginning.
1: One of the uh, other factors that came into play with the churches is, on the one hand, hand we were told, this is the way you love your neighbor. But on the other hand, we were told that the church must submit to the authorities. And, uh, And often Romans 13 was quoted in that context that uh, we must be subject to the governing authorities and if the governing authorities are telling us this and telling us to stay away from each other and get vaccinated and so forth then the church must submit so should we have and how do we navigate that whole issue because knowing the truth in this um, instance would have meant in uh, to put it quite frankly disobeying government mandates. And not many churches wanted to go there. So I don't know if anybody wants to comment about that and how we navigate that. How does a church navigate that issue, obeying the authorities? If the church in principle doesn't have the capacity for
3: civil disobedience, and of course it's a prudential question when and how that should be done, but If the church in principle doesn't have the capacity for civil disobedience, and we'll cite that line from Paul's letter to the Romans to justify obedience to the state uh, always and everywhere, then the church doesn't have a mission. The church doesn't have any non-negotiable elements to its mandate given to it by a much higher authority than the authority of the state. And I think in, in Catholic Protestant Orthodox contexts, different denominational contexts, those non-negotiables might look a little bit different from my own Catholic tradition. I would argue that administering the sacraments, particularly to the sick and the dying, is one of those non-negotiables that my, the Catholic Church failed in not demanding access to the sick and dying in the hospital during the pandemic because we had a form of spiritual care and uh, uh, spiritual medicine, if you will, that was actually more important than whatever uh, biological or medical interventions were being done in the hospital. And, you know, for others, it may be uh, face-to-face ministry of the Word in certain contexts. Uh, It may be the administration of of other sacraments in other contexts. But each... Each church, each denomination uh, within the the Christian church needs to, I think, examine its conscience and examine its creedal commitments and decide which of these things are are negotiable, could we make room for at the directive of the state, and which of these things are are non-negotiable, which of these things are we prepared to exercise civil disobedience for. And if the answer in the latter latter category is nothing, then – um what you have there is an empty cipher you don't have uh a, you know a meaningful adherence to to the body of Christ to the, the presence of the holy spirit in the world
0: i i know douglas you have talked about um recently a hierarchy of goods maybe you could say something about a hierarchy of goods as we um Help the church reflect on what happened and how did we arrange those hierarchy of goods and uh, did we understand the goods that we were arranging?
4: Yes, I, I see the the problem here that we've had as uh, threefold. Um, the, the first was I'm talking about our response. The problems that the state has are multiple uh, beyond that, <laughs> but but the the um, the way in which many Christians responded to the the um, the narrative that was propounded and indeed pounded forth, like uh, like wave after wave of, of, of fear propaganda, um, the way in which many of uh, of Christians, many Christians responded was pretty much on the same level as their neighbors. They were, they were um, uh, deceived by this, and they themselves began to panic. And um, I think we've all witnessed in our ecclesial communities signs of people panicked. Uh, priests who who and ministers who closed their churches even before the government demanded that they do so. Uh, And upon reopening, people, you know, uh, wiping down pews and so forth with with great diligence, like they were tending holy vessels in the sanctuary, Um, even though by then we knew clearly that that this was not the way COVID spreads. Um, And people um, uh, cutting off family, cutting off friends, uh, cutting off their relation to the church itself. Uh, uh, no longer uh, coming to, to receive sacramental ministries and so forth. Th- these things tell us that uh, that our our um, sense of what is important and our capacity to uh, to seek the good and to and to order goods so that we are always on the way to higher goods that that we had this uh we did not have the capacity at that point or we we did not um continue to tr- to strive for that we were spooked and we and we behaved in a panic-stricken fashion so um there's there's something that needs to be addressed there the 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 attempt to save the body um trumped the responsibility to order body and soul to God, first of all, and to the neighbor, secondly. Um, So we have some hard uh, soul searching to do there on that level. The, the, um, the level of the church and its relation to the state is the, is the second concern for me. And it's already been, been raised. Um, The, the uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, uh, uh, which we're not a f- officially a member, but at the moment we <laughs> we're doing a similar sort of thing, um, has just released a statement, um, uh, the title of which is drawn from, from uh, Romans and from Peter, uh, um, Paul and Peter, um, Fear God, Honor the Emperor. And you can find that in in the uh, I think it's the March issue of First Things, but anyway, it's a very recent issue. Um, and it's a very good statement, which uh, which is which has the order right. the The biblical order, the biblical frame, <laughs> is fear God, honor the emperor. Those who prefer to fear the emperor. And still try to honor God are attempting something that is simply impossible. It's not the same term that is used for each. We fear God, which means that we that we um, we honor and adore and submit to God. We honor the emperor which means that we recognize that God has given political authority um, a mandate to order temporal affairs as well as possible and as justly as possible. But, of course, we we know that temporal authorities, secular authorities, uh, do not always do that. Sometimes they bumble around, and we've seen uh, lately (laughs) all the evidence we need of how they were bumbling around in the in the pandemic, uh, if, if if anyone doubts the bumbling, then let them you know look at the Hancock files that have been released on, on the Daily Telegraph um, in Britain and see just how extensive the bureaucratic bumbling was of course it wasn't just bumbling it was it was egoism it was political posturing it was ambition combined with immense incompetence and and with using the name of science against the science Um, so that's one level but but the other level is that is that sometimes the governments have larger agendas which are not just agendas that is the agendas are not just. <laughs> and so this this biblical advice to fear God, that's your framework. And within the fear of God you honor the 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 legitimate political authorities, when they are doing what God gave them to do, which is to seek justice and to and to serve the common good, when they stop doing either of those things, they no longer have a mandate from God which the Christian and the Christian churches are bound to obey, so the churches cannot simply leave it to the governments to decide essential things even about the temporal sphere. Uh, And they certainly can't leave it to governments to decide matters that pertain to the church's unique and higher mandate that leads to um, the question, or deals with questions about eternal life and the ultimate destiny of human beings so that's that's a secondary in which we need some reordering. The question of personal goods, how we order personal goods, how the goods of the body are in the service of the goods of the soul, and the whole person, body, and soul are in the service of God. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the question of how we deal with these overlapping, the points at which the church's mandate to lead people to eternal life overlaps with and intersects with the a temporal or secular authority's responsibility to order temporal affairs in some reasonably just and effective fashion, because it always does overlap in education, in healthcare, and so forth. There are common concerns, and the church has its mandate, the state has his, but you can't isolate those from one another altogether, because there are too many areas where a decision taken about something affects both temporal ordering and what leads or does not lead to the eternal good of the human being. Then the third level is the, is the gospel itself. Um, I think here, uh, I don't know whether I've mentioned this on a biblical frame before or not, but uh, I think here of the, of the, of Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece. Um, And when, when you, when you look at this work, uh you know in 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 days when not everybody had access to uh to all the texts that we can look up online or hold in our hand uh art was very important for communicating the the gospel to people so you look at this at, at the altar and and you see these panels one of which uh deals with the old covenant the preparation of the womb of Mary for the Messiah to come, the annunciation, the light is coming, and Mary and child with the heavenly light reflecting uh, um, from, the face of, on, from the face of Christ back into the eyes of Mary and the church, and then the panel with the, with the crucifixion. Uh, when, that, that's what you see when it's closed, right? But when you open it up, you see the rest of this, including the resurrection. And what's underneath it? What's underneath it is is a panel in which you see the dead Christ, the Christ who has been on the cross, laid out for burial, and he is covered with plague. Hmm. He's covered with plague. This is the one whom the creator of all sends into our midst, not to isolate from us, but to be with us in such a way as to bear our sins and our diseases. And how anyone looking at that could imagine that the church would respond the way it did to this viral situation, which is <laughs> nothing at all like the plague. These people knew what a serious contagion and a high infection fatality rate was they didn't understand the science of it and you know they could have benefited a lot from Aaron curiati and others explaining it to them but they understood the reality and they could they could prepare on the altar this reminder that our lord came to bear our sins and diseases when you think about that and you and you begin to grasp the gospel is a gospel of freedom from fear and so also from bondage. Because of this atoning work of the one who comes to be with us and near us and among us and, and to suffer with us, you are not going to respond the way the churches um, in the last three years, by and large, have responded. So we need a recovery also on that level and especially on that level, a grasp of the gospel. So...
2: Uh... Let me just uh, respond to that. That I think that is that is very, very true. I could see a pastor uh, saying, you know, going back to what we've said earlier um, about uh, the disease, what it is, the fatality rate that Aaron's mentioned, so on and so forth. Um, and a pastor said, well, how? I didn't know. You know, I didn't know these things. I mean, I went on, there was a pandemic, and my people are panicking. I didn't know. Um that's the one thing, and the other is your theological instincts, right? That you that you should have developed, and they weren't developed enough to make you curious enough. That's how I would say it. To say, um, well, if this is the Christ that 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 Doug just portrayed, right, on the altarpiece, the Christ is with us, the Christ who is Lord and not Caesar is Lord, and so on and so forth. Fear God, but not uh, and honor the emperor instead the other way around. If if you had developed these theological intuitions, um, then there would have at least been the impulse, I would argue, to say, "Well, uh, we we can, we we shouldn't, you know, we should not uh, react like this. We should not lock down. We shouldn't do this." And that would then drive you, I think, to try to inquire whether whether the the things are actually so. I mean, I often wonder why people do not, why so many pastors did not bother to actually get the information that was available. At that point, so I think it's it's um, if we want to be prepared um, for the future, uh, as we're staring toward that in a in a in a bit, it it really matters that it has to be the self reflection within the church. Is the Christ who who whom we've been preaching, the Christ whom we've been portraying, and consequently the human image of this God that we bear, which is the image of Christ? Like have we been uh, deficient, right? I mean, have we not preached the Christ fully? I mean, it's it's got it. You you have to ask these uh, these questions. And I mean, just and then one other point: it is now known that we started the pandemic. I mean, we have to be utterly clear on that—that there wasn't a pandemic. Like we started this. There was a virus, highly infectious, which wasn't a killer virus, and the panic started with computing models. It started with numbers that were fictitious that were that were possible numbers and in a number of countries I know for a fact they picked the worst possible computing model there were a number of them and they picked the worst ones which was then given to the politicians and corrections that came pretty hard and fast from academics um, were, were disregarded so we went with this panic you know and very early on Had you wanted to have the information because you had had theological instances, this goes against everything we believe in terms of who God is, who we are in his light, then there should have been more effort to search for information. Anyway, that seems to me a dilemma that the church needs to address.
3: It seems to me that there were central doctrines of Christianity that were denied in practice, if not in words, by that supine, uncritical response to whatever the government was telling us to do. Uh, I think there was an implicit denial of the doctrine of original sin, the implications of which would suggest that people in power, government agencies may frequently abuse that power, may be opportunistic in using a declared emergency in order to accrue additional powers. And if you begin following the trail on that, you see that that's exactly what happened, that economic actors and economic interests, global corporations, for example, used the pandemic as an opportunity to accrue massive wealth and to vacuum up the wealth of the working class and the middle class. So... This kind of faith and trust, unquestioning faith and trust, both in government, in world-spanning global corporations, and in science and technology, as the only solution to a novel problem that our society was facing, all of that suggests to me that Christians don't actually believe in the doctrine of original sin; that they, they believe in rationalism, which which starts with the, the unproven denial of the doctrine of original sin and the assumption of uh, progress and salvation through science and technology and the application of our own abilities to solve each and every problem, these notions should be, uh, to, to any Christian, should be immediately recognized as a source of folly. And again, you don't have to be a scientist to, uh, to understand the nature of the problem from that perspective.
2: Yeah, and another uh, thing, just to go back to what Doug has said, you know, when, when do these, the, the care of the church for the eternal soul and the care of the church for the temporal goods, when they overlap, so what has happened with our understanding of the Christ who is the center of all of reality, in whom these things overlap, at least and so far, as God became a human being so that our humanity was shown perfectly in him, and so we should care for you know, uh, the, the, all these aspects of our, of our human flourishing that obviously are temporarily uh, exercised um, and part of the image of God. Like, how how did we not see this? So do we have, have we returned uh, to just, my favorite example is um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, usually in the in the Nazi era, again, to this kind of a faith that is more a personal piety than it is a faith that reaches out into all of the, uh, of the spheres of life, and therefore you know it takes high regard for what happens to the dignity of human with people in the old folks homes when we have to isolate like all these kind of things. How could we be so insensitive to that?
1: yeah I wonder also if uh, another another element to the church's acquiescence here was um <clears throat> not the not the fact that the church is just not and pastors are just not willing to suffer. Because the fact is, if you did resist and uh, go with the truth in this, even if you knew it, you were going to face some serious consequences from the state. And we've seen that, especially in Canada. We've seen some very public images of pastors being dragged out of churches uh, by police and being thrown in prison because they wouldn't shut their churches down, because they wouldn't stop feeding uh, the hungry and so forth, and so, uh, along with the Christ that is laid down uh, in death, covered with plague, is the Christ who suffered on the cross, and by that gave us an example that we also must suffer and um, this idea that we will suffer for the truth is not a concept that many of us want to uh, want to um, accept. <clears throat> and i think we have to realize that uh, when the next crisis comes at least learning from this one that if if the if as the church we stand up for the truth we will suffer for it there will be a price to be paid and we must be ready to pay that okay so let me just drill
0: down on that a little bit because i think we need to be specific in terms of where should pastors have been willing to suffer where they were unwilling to suffer. So when we talk about the cruciform Christ, and we talk about most pastors' response to this, and being willing to go into those areas where we will touch the leper, what specifically should pastors have done in this instance? What are we saying about their willingness to suffer?
2: Let me let me throw in one more practical example, because I've heard this from a pastor just okay. recently. Um, who said, well, there were these pastors out there who were did these radical responses. They kept the church open, they were fined. they were even dragged away by the police. Right? We've had this in Canada. Uh, I didn't do that, um, but I'm not the lesser for that. I, I, I tr- so my problem was, while I saw this, I had to work with my congregation where, let's say, 50% or 40% saw it as I did, but the rest didn't. Uh, even among my elders, and I had to sort of bring them together and hold them together, and uh, we did that during COVID, and that's why, you know, we didn't do the radical thing. We kind of did that thing, so we conformed to some extent, And but I had to do that, and I don't think I'm the lesser for it, now post facto, right, after. So that's one of these questions. So do we have advice for that? Yeah, I, I would ask that, Pastor, the question... Uh, that I referred to earlier
3: about what were your non-negotiable essentials? Did you have any, or were you just trying to keep the congregation and the elders and the community together at all costs? And if you as the pastor who ultimately have spiritual responsibility to shepherd that flock, aren't clear about what those essentials are. Okay. We can bend here. We can tweak there. But on this thing, We have to hold steadfast. If you don't have those, then what you've done is simply compromise with the spirit of the age, which happened to be represented among your congregation. Um, If you did have those essentials and you were willing to adhere to them, and maybe you did it quietly, maybe you didn't want a big public scene, but you were prepared to resist when it came to certain things that you were just simply not going to give up. Then you could make an argument that you navigated that with some degree of of supernatural prudence, of of Christian wisdom. But be careful about succumbing to the wisdom of of the world. Be careful about, and of course, our Lord prayed for unity. He didn't want people to walk away and leave. But when he preached certain doctrines, I'm thinking of John chapter six, uh, and and the bread of life discourse. Some people left. Mm-hmm. And he allowed them to do that. He allowed them to leave rather than compromising uh, the doctrines that he was preaching. And at a certain point, a pastor needs to needs to even be willing to let people get upset, maybe even let people leave the congregation or go find another one for the sake of he- adhering to the deposit of faith, uh, the creedal claims, the central ministries of the church that can't be relinquished and uh so prudence can can often masquerade as cowardice and i don't want to accuse that, that particular individual of falling into one or another of those categories but i think that that answer alone is insufficient without a, a more critical examination of conscience
4: yeah um yeah go ahead you meant cowardice masquerading as prudence. Yes, um, I'm sorry. Did I say yeah, that backwards? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a great deal of confusion about that <laughs> yes. out there, so I'm very glad you you raised it. I, I think that these past 3 years I had someone uh at the event the other night that we some of us shared in uh uh ask about the these you know this this what, what was God doing in all of this? And Uh, We've thought about that together a little bit, but one of the things I said was that that God was testing us. God was testing the churches. Um, Where cowardice manifests itself as a display of of, uh, putative prudence, (laughs) Um, we are failing the test. Uh, Where we do not Learn under pressure uh, to order our goods right and to be willing to let go of temporal goods for the sake of eternal goods, uh, it is displayed to us that our priorities are wrong and that we have things backwards. So uh, I think one of the uh, un- underlying concerns we have as we pursue this present discussion is is that the church did, on the whole, give the impression of having failed this test. And there needs to be real um, soul-searching as to how the people were not better prepared by those charged with ministry but also amongst the people, why they did not respond to to the preparation they had been given, why the gospel was so easily set aside and the poor so easily trampled, the vulnerable so easily abandoned, friends cut off, congregations divided. God has shown us through this how weak we are. Think of those letters in the Apocalypse to the seven churches in in chapters 2 and 3. That, and in each case where this kind of failing of the test was evident the the Jesus that appears there in the apocalypse warns the church that in question y- y- your candlestick is about to be removed strengthen the things that remain or, or it will be removed and i think that's that's probably for me the chief lesson for the churches out of the past three years, because we are not done with the testing. And I, I, let's, let's be perfectly honest here.
3: Most of the fear that influenced uh, cowardice, it, it was not a fear of being put in jail. It was not a fear of being fined so heavily by the government that my church would close down in, in many, many, many instances, it was simply a fear of being called names. It was a, a fear of being mischaracterized or slandered. It was a fear of what what will people say? It was a basic level of excessive human respect for what the culture and particularly the, the culture despisers of religion might say about my church if I do this. What political category are they going to put me in that I don't want to be associated with and you know fear of what other people will think fear of what other people will say you know this isn't this is not pastors and church leaders facing a, a serious form of martyrdom this is this is a level of cowardice that I think we need to reckon with
0: the conversation with Douglas Faro Aaron Cariati Ed Gerber Ivan de Silva and Yen Zimmerman will continue next week in part two of the COVID apocalypse. Thank you for listening to a biblical frame.